Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. My name is Alan Stanford and welcome to Othello in Offaly. My name is Peter Macon. I'm originally from Chicago, but I live in Los Angeles. And I'm playing Othello here at the Abbey Theatre. My name is Marty Ray, and I'm playing Iago. Inglewood, Chicago, like the south side of Chicago. We, we left because uh, the gangs, you know, vice lords, disciples, gangs, I mean, they were encroaching. So it was really becoming um, difficult to get home. I used to have to take the city bus from third grade. The gangs would, you know, recruit. So my mom, having the, the presence of mind and the fortitude of a saint, decided to move us 10 hours away north from an all-black world to an all-white world in the 80s in Minneapolis. And at the time, there were more theater actors per capita than there were in New York, you know, so, like, you could you could make a living. So, like, I was, I kind of grew up in a culturally rich period of time um, before, you know, things started going downhill. I am originally from Craigavon in County Armagh, and we moved back to Belfast in 1989, and then I left to go to London uh, when I was 18, 19, so 98. Um, I trained at the Yale School of Drama, but I worked for about 13 years. I started working when I got out of high school, um, so I worked for about 13 years, and, and then I decided I wanted to take an acting class, so I went to graduate school <laughs> uh, at the Yale School of Drama. And um, then I lived in New York for a while, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and then I moved to uh, Southern Oregon, and I was a company member at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival there for about five years, and I've just recently, about three years ago, moved back to Los Angeles. I trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London from 1999 to 2002. Um, I worked in London for the first kind of four years after I graduated. I kind of kicked around London for a while, did a few gigs in Manchester and Birmingham, places like that, always with it in mind to come back, and did in 2006 to do Conal Morrison's production of The Importance of Being Earnest at the Abbey. And that was me. I was back then. Othello is a champion for the Venetian army. Brabantio, you know, goes from being a guy that invites him to dinner and wants to hear his stories about him, you know, his travels and his life and the fortunes and, like, being sold to slavery and, like, cannibals and, like, wants to hear all these great stories. And then he steals off literally elopes with his daughter he's now he's the sooty bosom he's the antithesis of what you know it's not you it's great for you to come over and eat and tell your stories but you can't marry my daughter and i really wonder how that plays in a place like dublin where i guess a decade or so it's been immigrants have been coming here and people settling here and you know like and what the feeling is i mean like generationally speaking i know that like I mean, I've been to, like, Prague and Budapest and places like that, and, like, young folks are very open. We're, we're just, like, all in this. It's a generational thing. But the older people, they're like, what are you doing here? And I find, and I'm not sure if I find that to be the case here in Ireland or not, but but I know that it's a generational, because it's like the young people don't know anything different, really, mm-hmm. you know, but, like, the older people know, oh, there's one that's got off the boat, okay, and, like, they, they're take, keeping track of the numbers, and it's growing. I, I know I'm, I'm being facetious, but but I just wonder. So all these things I'm thinking about, I ask all of these questions of this character, his religion. He mentions heaven and hell so much for Christian shame put by this barbarous brawl. Are we turned Turks and to ourselves do that which heaven hath forbid the Ottomites? And, and, and maybe he's a newly, he's a Christian convert. Like I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus, like a, a, a malignant and a turban Turk mm. beat a Venetian and traduced the state. 
I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus. I killed this. So I killed myself. I killed an example of myself. So I'm asking all these questions as this guy playing this role. Iago has been the most difficult character for me to ever talk about, to be honest with you. Um, he thinks that he has been overlooked for the position of lieutenant to Othello and that the job has been given to Michael Cassio. He thinks that's been done. Iago thinks that that's being done because Cassio is better born than he is. And Iago also speaks to the audience. And when he speaks to the audience, he tends to concentrate on the idea that Othello has slept with Emilia, Iago's wife. He also claims that Cassio has slept with her as well. Um, Iago is obsessed with sex. Yeah. The whole way through his language, he yeah. doesn't... I think his, his downfall essentially is his misunderstanding and his lack of understanding of plutonic love. Right. He just doesn't recognise it. And he he thinks that everyone who does anything for anyone has got some kind of a physical thing that, that they want, some physical sexual thing that they want from that person. He thinks that's what's driving everyone because it drives him. This is the fourth time I've played Othello and I was just sitting here thinking, I struggle with this play. I don't know if I like this play or not. Being on this side, I mean, I wonder what it would be like to play Iago. It's a tricky, it's a tricky, tricky spot because you have this man who's this great general he's a military strategist he's, he's he has a great mind he i talked to a guy the other night he was from um eritrea and he was sitting in the front row and then he said i was kind of looking around to see if there are any other you know brown people and what their experience would be like i mean and it's really does and see, in the way that our stage is configured is that they have people on the stage and so some people you know, are watching audience members watch the play. So all that stuff's going on. I mean, this like this thing is happening. This event of this play is happening on so many different levels at once. You know, and all you know, the subconscious and the conscious and the unspoken and the things that's funny to me and the uncomfortable laughter. Oh God, what does it feel like to watch a big, strong black man? You know, strangle. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, um, the 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 this 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 young. Or this this woman who's like, he's like three times as big as her. so like you know, and then like the perversity of like their you know their sexual relationship and make this huge. I mean, so all of this stuff is happening, and whether we want to acknowledge it or not, you know, it's it's in our consciousness. There's very little concrete, specific information about this man, like where he's from, what he sounds like. So I've toyed and played with different dialect sounds for instance in this production i have a very hard r a lot of rolls in my r's if you pepper in what i look like you know um sub-saharan western african and there's a tonality and a lilt that happens when they talk if i want to go and speak this way i mean so but then it's like how much do to to temper that and tone that so i mean i did a production two years ago where it was very like um, robust and, and big doublets and big swords and so my very noble and approved good masters he was very much this way you know I mean I struggle with this play because I was just thinking today I was like he, he says um, and he finds out what's really happened you know cursed cursed slave he says to himself in a period of time when my ancestors the, the transatlantic slave trade is full on going you know since so, so there's like there's a dichotomy that i that i, that I struggle with in, in that um i do believe shakespeare to be a genius but i part of me is a pessimist and part of me questions the ability for this english elizabethan playwright to really get inside the mind 
of a moor. I had a big bee in my bonnet playing Hamlet because I got pissed off with everyone saying that he couldn't make up his mind and that he was mad. I found doing it that he was more a guy that was genuinely upset rather than mad. Because by the world of the play, you have to understand that this guy has been visited by his dead father's ghost and he believes that. it's all He's having to deal with something that is fairly huge. It's not indecision for the sake of fluttering around a castle and flowing black clothes or anything and going, oh me, oh my, what am I going to do? The guy is in a genuine quandary. It's a big deal. And he wants to do it properly. So in terms of that kind of uh, trying to do it right, when he sees Claudius, the uncle, and now stepfather at this stage, praying on his own, a perfect opportunity to kill him. Hamlet says, Now might I do it, Pat, now he is praying, and now I'll do it, and so he goes to heaven, and so am I revenged, that would be scanned. A villain kills my father, and for that, I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven, Oh, this is hire and salary, not revenge. He took my father grossly, full of bread, with all his crimes broad blown as flush as may. And how his audit stands, who knows, save but in our circumstance and course of thought, tis heavy with him, and am I then revenged to take him in the purging of his soul when he is fit and seasoned for his passage? No. My first part in a Shakespeare play was playing Macbeth, which was a kick in the teeth because I actually auditioned hoping to, you know, to get like Ross or Minty, like one of these small roles that just come on and say, you know, but they cast me as the guy and I'm like, oh, what are we going to do about this? And so <laughs> for three weeks, I had no idea what I was doing, none whatsoever. I thought for sure I'd be fired and I was 25 years old, right? So we go out and like have a 10 minute break. And I go outside to get some air and I take my sword out and I started hacking up this tree with my sword because I was so frustrated and I was saying the lines and I was like, oh, you got to breathe. That's what you got to do. You got to breathe. Then it makes sense. And it just all locked in. And I went back in and I it just clicked. Playing Richard II was amazing. Richard II is like, uh, for me, he's like Shakespeare's wrestling with the idea of a Hamlet. Just you, you see such echoes of Hamlet's self-assessment is kind of work out what it is to be a man to be human in a way that really Elizabethan theatre hadn't fully experienced at all so Richard's in Pomfret Castle being left alone there in the prison and he says I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world and for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself I cannot do it yet I'll hammer it out. My brain I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts. And these same thoughts people this little world in humours, like the people of this world. For no thought is contented, the better sort, as thoughts of things divine, are intermixed with scruples and do set the word itself against the word as thus, come, little ones, and then again, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a needle's eye. I mean, I've done much ado about nothing, and you know, playing Don Pedro at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He's kind of a thankless, thankless <laughs> role. Like no one really, really cares about him. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a sad, you know, like it's not, it's not one of my favorite plays. I mean, I'm not really a fan of the comedies. I'm like, 
you know, like Macbeth is is my favorite Shakespeare play, but Aaron the Moor and Titus Andronicus is, I think, my favorite Shakespeare character because he's just so unapologetically fierce and like you know he's going to bring down imperialism single-handedly well you know with Tamara you know being her her lover and things like that but but I just love I was just watching um a little clip the speech that he gives I wish I could have done 10,000 more bad things I've done a thousand things I can't misquoting but but I mean I got to play that part at the Shakespeare and Company in Washington DC and it's just like he's just so phenomenal I mean, it was just so great playing it in Washington DC and like you know, George Bush was president at the time, and you know, like just like this sort of imperialistic world of Washington D.C. and like playing this character, and really, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tear this, I'm gonna burn this whole place down, and it's not, I mean, and it's a reaction to to Rome coming and you know burning his world down and taking them prisoner in the beginning, and and like sacrificing Tamara's firstborn son, I think, and Titus. It's so, I mean, it's a reaction to. You, you stirred up a hornet's nest, and so he's really my favorite. I think more oftentimes for me, Shakespeare doesn't work on film uh, because I, I think the biggest thing about Shakespeare, the most exciting thing as a performer, is kind of experiencing a story being told to you via soundscape being the most important thing that's happening. I think visuals are second on the agenda when it comes to Shakespeare and that the sound is actually more important that the verse and the poetry and the choice of words, the choice of sounds, all that kind of brilliant use of language that he is a genius at, is what is our experience, whether we are aware of it or not. We are having a kind of an oral experience on our ears that is an emotional experience as well. And I don't know that in film that is appreciated by the people who are doing it all the time because they get so excited about the visual possibilities. I mean, with Roman Polanski's Macbeth, I got really annoyed because all of the asides or the soliloquies a lot of times were just voiceover. Mm. And so you're just like, so it just is there's this is huge void of the character working out, you know, what they're going to do. And it's if it's just like, if it's just a voiceover and you, you just see their face. I mean, it's like, I mean, that's it's a filmic trick, but it doesn't do, it's not the doesn't same serve the play. It doesn't, no. so. Ones that really work for me are Paul Schofield's Lear, the Russian Hamlet and uh, the Baz Luhrmann, uh, Romeo and Juliet, which was done in the 90s. There was something about the heat in those young men, the heat in the, obviously, where it was filmed and everything, you could see the heat, but you could feel the heat in the language. And there's something very important, I think, in Romeo and Juliet, where you have a load of young fellas that are partying and are drinking, and uh, as they say in Philadelphia, here I come, the blood's up, and there's that heat. It's just kind of, oh, Jesus, anything could happen. And in that film, you really felt it. I think it works because they really paid a lot of attention to the camera was mm. a character. You could watch that film with the sound off yeah. and still get the story. You still get, the, you're right about the heat, the world that they created, like this sort of crazy futuristic, almost like otherworldly time, the cars, the design of of the film, but the way that they would, like in the way that they edit it, like just that close up of, do you bite your thumb at me? Mm. And then like the camera's like, and like goes in and it's like the camera becomes like this, it would close in on someone speaking words. So you got to see like John Luiziamo's mouth use, say the words. So you don't, like you're absolutely right. You don't, when you experience Shakespeare live, there's a physical experience that happens 
with elongation of vowel sounds and consonants and were and like in spit flying and like the, it's very uh, muscular language. But what they did with the film is that I think that they used the camera to like focus in on like what the lips are doing with the words, you know. I mean, when you think of it, it's funny. Shapiro's new book at the moment, 1606, and that year he, he knocks out Lear, Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra in a year. I mean, these are virtuoso kind of works of verse compared to what was being written at the time. He really starts to play with his own form, with the, with the form, the kind of Elizabethan a dramatic verse form. He's d doing crazy kind of stuff. But by the time you get to the, the like of the Winter's Tale and the Tempest, I mean he's really at the, he's at the tip top of his game there. Drama on one Sundays at eight pm. RTA.ia forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. <laughs>